We've been stressing in our series of lessons the importance of Bible authority, the necessity of it. If we're going to please God, we've got to do what He says and do it the way He says to do it. That's just common sense, and it's certainly proven by biblical statements as well. I hope you understand and appreciate the importance of having Bible authority for everything we do, say, and practice. In fact, when people ask us about our work here at College U, I think that's the thing we want to stress to them. That's, we believe, what makes us what we are. We're trying to follow the Bible as carefully as we can. We want to go to the Word of God. We want to understand what it teaches. We want to do what He says just the way He says to do it. It's about Bible authority. And God is the one, of course, who has that authority. So we're continuing our series of study tonight about Bible authority, again, stressing just how absolutely important it is. We thank you for being here and appreciate your diligence to come back on Sunday night. We have visitors tonight. We're grateful for your presence. Thanks for coming. We hope you'll come every time you have a chance to be here. If you listen carefully to what we're talking about tonight, you, again, will find out uh, a key aspect of our work together in this local congregation. That is that we're trying very hard to have Bible authority for all that we do. We want to be able to document that what we're doing is in accordance with the Bible. And so, uh, thanks for being here, and if you're visiting, especially thanks, and we hope you'll uh, give special heed and attention to the kind of things that we're talking about here tonight. When we talk about authority, we, in our last lesson, we emphasized the fact that authority for religious practice does not come through various human sources. We're not able to do what we want. In other words, this is how I feel, this is what I like, therefore I do it this way. That doesn't work. Uh, we don't get our religious authority from other men, preachers, elders, or even the majority, what they're doing. Those are not the ways that we obtain authority for our religious practice. As we said at the conclusion of our last lesson, our authority comes from the Word of God. He speaks to us specifically through His inspired Word, the Bible. And even within the Bible, when we're looking for our law for today, our authority for religious action today, we look specifically to the New Testament not to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is certainly from God. It's inspired. It has important information. But when we're looking for our law, for the rules that we live by today, we're looking to the New Testament uh, in, in our Bibles. So, okay, having said that much, then comes the question, we're looking at the Bible, we want to use the New Testament as our authority for religious practice today. How do we go to the New Testament and from it figure out what we're supposed to be doing. How do we do that? Well, we think clearly that as our authority comes from God, we are authorized by Him to act based upon, first of all, direct commands contained in the Scripture and statements of fact as are found there. This is the easiest part of the equation. Uh, we have less difficulty understanding when the Bible says, do this or don't do that. That's pretty straightforward, and typically we don't have any problems with that. If God says it, and we fear Him, then we will do it. Notice in John chapter 14, verses 15 and 21, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Jesus said simply that keeping commandments is important and necessary, and it's even a sign of our love. Uh, for him and the Father, that we should do what he tells us to do. That's not hard. Now, as an example of that, we might go to the Great Commission. 
In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. When you take a direct command from the Lord like that, go into all the world, preach the gospel of every creature, do you have to wonder what he wants us to do? Uh, in other words, should I, I ask the question, does, does the Lord want me to be talking to my neighbor about salvation? I don't have to wonder about that, do I? He obviously does. He told us to. He commanded us to be busy spreading the word. And so when we have a direct command or statement of fact in the Scripture, that clearly establishes the authority of God and we should act accordingly. We might talk about one potential problem that comes up sometimes. There are those who argue that the specific words of Jesus are authoritative while the other words of our New Testament may not be. Or maybe the words of Jesus are more powerful, more authoritative than those that are written in other places. Some of us have, I certainly do, and you probably do have at least one version of the Bible that has the words of Jesus in red, a so-called red-letter edition of the Bible. And some people think you've got to find it in those red letters. Jesus actually said it, or you can't count on it. And that's not true. Paul said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. There wasn't any doubt about that. And so, whether Jesus said or one of the other inspired writers said it, when we've got a direct command or statement in the Scripture, we're authorized to act. In fact, we must be acting in accordance with those things that we are told. Now, Another way in which we get authority from the Scripture is by approved examples. In other words, if we see recorded in our New Testament an example, an approved example of people acting in accordance with the will of God, then their example sets a pattern that we should imitate. Now, this, has been, this, this argument has been under attack, especially in recent years. Some of our own brethren have been saying I don't think you can draw any conclusions simply based upon the examples of what first century Christians did. For instance, in a religious publication, a preacher wrote, To my mind, it is not correct to say that the examples of inspired men represent divine instruction. Neither, the, neither Christ nor the Holy Spirit have had speech problems. When they wanted to give specific instruction, they gave it, it is presumptuous to assume examples as commands. Did you get that? He's saying we're, we're, we're making a presumption. We should not base our practice on the examples of Scripture. If the Lord wanted us to do it, he said so. We shouldn't be trying to base our practice upon examples. I think that guy is absolutely dead wrong in the statement that we just read. Look, for instance, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. You see, Paul said, do what I do. Follow my example. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I'm following Christ. And you therefore use me as a pattern if you want to. Follow me as I follow Christ, is what Paul said. In Philippians 3, verse 17, he said, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Paul said, imitate those people who are following us. Let them be an example for us. But clearly, the plainest statement along this line is in Philippians 4, verse 9, when Paul said, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. 
Notice Paul said, not only the things you've been taught, but actually the things also you saw me do, you do those things as well. This clearly establishes example as a means of authority. When we have an approved example in the New Testament, we can use that as our authority for action today. If it's what the first century Christians did, under the guidance and leadership of the inspired apostles, that establishes a pattern, an authorized pattern for us to imitate. Now, you may notice that we talked about approved example. And the reason we talk about approved example is there are some things written in the New Testament that talk about things people did that were not approved. For instance, in the text that was read by Britt earlier, in Galatians chapter 2, we have an example of the Apostle Peter. He was an inspired apostle, but he did wrong. The apostles weren't infallible. They weren't sinless men. And in this case, we have the Apostle Peter acting wrongly. And Paul called him out on it. In Galatians 2, verse 11, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, and he goes on to, to describe the rebuke that he gave to Peter. So I think it's important for us to talk about approved examples in the New Testament. Not every example is an approved one. We just gave you an example there in Galatians 2 of an unapproved example. In other words, here's an example of one who was doing something wrong. But we're told it was wrong, and he was openly rebuked for his sin. But when we have an example that's approved in the Scripture, there's no doubt about the fact that it is authoritative and we should act accordingly. The third means of establishing authority from the New Testament is what we call necessary inference. Now, we're building a case here. How does God authorize us to act? Clearly by direct commander statement, definitely by approved example. But what is this business about necessary inference? What do we mean by that anyway? That's not normal language. Those are terms that we wouldn't typically use in regular conversation. What do we mean? Well, when you infer something. What does the dictionary say about making an inference? To infer, according to the dictionary, is to derive by reasoning, conclude or judge from premises or evidence. Well, if we would put that in our own words, we would say something like it's drawing a conclusion from available information or evidence. So there's some evidence, there's some information here. We draw a conclusion from it. Right? So that's what inference is. What does necessary mean? Well, you understand necessary. The dictionary says necessary is that which cannot be dispensed with. And so when we're talking about necessary inference, we're talking about things that are absolutely essential, unavoidable, which cannot be denied. In fact, some folks, instead of using the expression necessary inference, which we have usually used, will use the expression unavoidable conclusion. It's an unavoidable conclusion. You have some information here, and you can't avoid drawing this conclusion from the information which has been supplied. Now, again, uh, this is under attack, and there are some who don't like this methodology. Uh, here's what a preacher wrote. He said, this necessary inference thing is one that's gotten us into big trouble throughout the years. There is no example of any man of God in the Old or New Testament ever reasoning by necessary inference. Uh, I deny that. I think we'll be able to prove it here in a minute that 
men of God did use necessary inference to, to, to reach conclusions. But just use as an example how we would use necessary inference, unavoidable conclusions. You know this verse, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Here's the command to assemble. What is implied in that statement? And what inference should we draw from what's implied there? Well, what's clearly implied is that if you're going to assemble, there must therefore be a place for such assemblies to take to, to occur, right? If we're going to assemble, there must be a place. Now, it could be any kind of a place. It could be under a shade tree somewhere. But uh, as the weather turns cold here, shade trees are not going to be as commodious as they were earlier in the year. And it's going to rain some, be cold. Under a shade tree, probably not a great place. It could, it could work sometimes, but not all the time. Well, we could meet in somebody's home. And Christians of the first century did that sometimes. But as, as congregations grow larger, that's going to become unreasonable. How do you think the church at Jerusalem, which numbered over 3,000 people on its very first day, how do you think they met in one private home? Wouldn't be possible, would it? And so therefore some public facilities might be uh, uh, in order. We could rent a place. We could use a public hall. We could, as this congregation does, build and maintain a building for these purposes. And that authority comes from necessary inference. We have the authority for a meeting place because we're commanded to assemble. Therefore, it is our judgment to decide what's the best means to fulfill that command. We have to, we have, to have a place because we're commanded to assemble. So it is a necessary inference an unavoidable conclusion from the evidence that is presented. Still, there are some who would argue, uh, I don't know, I don't know about this. this. This may be a Church of Christ scheme that some have invented to come up with a means of determining Bible authority. That's just your way of looking at it. Well, I don't think so. Let's use a couple examples. First of all, let's use the Lord's Supper as an example of applying these means of knowing what the Lord wants us to do when it comes to observing the Lord's Supper. First of all, we have a command in regards to what we're supposed to be doing. Paul, in recounting what Jesus instituted in the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament and my blood. This do ye as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice we have a command here, what we're supposed to do. We're specifically supposed to take the bread to represent the body of Jesus. We're supposed to drink the fruit of the vine in remembrance of his blood. He says, This do ye. This is what we're supposed to do. We're commanded as to what we're supposed to do in observing the Lord's Supper. Uh, someone says, could we change the elements of the Lord's Supper? You know, this is a new day. People think about things differently. Could we have, instead of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, could we have pizza and Pepsi-Cola? No, because Jesus told us what to do, right? We would all object to changing those elements when it is clearly stated what Jesus told us to do. So by command, we know what we're supposed to do. By example, we know when we're supposed to do it. 
In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continue his speech until midnight. Here's an approved example. How do we know this is an approved example? Because Paul was there. Paul was an inspired apostle. He was there. What did they do? They met on the first day of the week to break bread. The expression, we could go into this more thoroughly, but the expression to break bread here is a reference to observing the Lord's Supper. They met on the first day of the week, Sunday, to observe the Lord's Supper. Paul was there and joined with them in that meeting. So someone says, well, we get together on Wednesday. We have a Bible study Wednesday nights. Why don't we do the Lord's Supper on Wednesday? Well, our answer to that would be there wouldn't be any authority for doing that because we have, by way of the example set forth here, we know that the first century Christians observed the Lord's Supper on Sunday, not on Wednesday. So we're going to do it on Sunday, right? Again, it's a question of authority. We're going to do what the Bible says or not. We're going to do it on Sunday or some other day. We're going to do it on Sunday because we have authority by means of apostolic example that we should do it on Sunday. But there's still a question here. How often should we do it? What's the frequency of observance? In other words, every week has a Sunday. Should we do it the first Sunday of the month? Uh, maybe once a quarter on a Sunday? Maybe once or twice a year? We'll do it on Sunday always, but... How often on Sundays should we do the Lord's Supper? Well, we draw that conclusion by way of necessary inference. Did you notice here in Acts 20, verse 7, when it says the disciples came together to break bread on the first day of the week, it doesn't specify it was the first Sunday of the month, or it was the Sunday right after the full moon, or it was the, the, the Sunday after uh, the... Uh, summer equinox, or I mean, whatever. Uh, uh, there's no specification. Therefore, we conclude that we should do it every Sunday. How would we conclude otherwise? The only conclusion we could reach, uh, if, if on your job, for instance, you were told, on Monday, I want you to do this and that. In other words, on Monday, I want you to to get together the sales figure from last week and bring a report to me by 10 o'clock on Monday. Well, how often are you supposed to do that? Well, you would understand, well, you do it every Monday. That's an assignment to carry out every Monday. Do it every time Monday comes. You're supposed to fill out this report about last week's sales figures, right? You'd understand that. And that's the same thing we're doing here. Based upon the available information, we're drawing what is an inescapable conclusion that this was the normal practice of Christians on the first day of the week. It has been argued, and I think it's a good argument, to compare this reasoning to what the Jews did in the Old Testament. One of the Ten Commandments, you remember, the fourth commandment, Acts 20, verse 8, was remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How often were the Jews to keep a Sabbath day holy? Every time there was a Sabbath day, right? Because it doesn't say the first Sabbath of the month or the first Sabbath after the new moon or anything. It just says, remember the Sabbath day to keep holy. Everyone understood, and they did, keep every seventh day, every Saturday. They kept holy. It was a Sabbath to the Lord. They understood, since it didn't specify a specific Sabbath, every Sabbath was to be kept holy. We understand that reasoning concerning the Sabbath day. In the New Testament, we have to use the same reasoning to conclude that the Lord's Supper should be observed every first day of the week. So what we've done there, using the Lord's Supper as an example, we have shown all three principles of establishing Bible authority. 
By command, we know what to do. By example, we know to do it on Sunday. And by necessary infants, we say it should be done every Sunday. That's all there is to it, right? Very straightforward. But again, there are still some who argue this and don't like to agree that this is the right and proper method that we should employ. There are those who are saying again that this is something that you folks have invented. You Church of Christ people have invented this way of thinking. It's not necessarily found in the Bible. That's just your means, your method, your dogma. But it's not found in the Bible. I think they're wrong. And if pressed, I believe we could go to a scriptural text that would show even the apostles arguing in this same fashion. Go with me to Acts chapter 15 and and review the story about the meeting that took place in the city of Jerusalem in Acts 15. You remember there was a big problem in the early church about the matter of circumcision. And some Jewish Christians were demanding that if Gentiles were converted, they must be circumcised. It was causing all kinds of problems in the first century church. They were just having real fights about this. A lot of trouble was brewing over this question of circumcision. Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem. They'd been working in Antioch of Syria, and they went up to Jerusalem not to to decide the issue, but rather to put a stop to the false teachers who were coming out of Jerusalem. They already knew the truth on this matter. But anyway, a meeting took place there. And in the meeting, there were several different men who spoke, inspired men who spoke. And notice how they concluded what the Lord wanted in the matter of circumcision. First of all, Peter speaks. In chapter 15 of Acts, beginning verse 7, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, ye know that how a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we shall be saved, even as they. Then he went on to conclude in verses 34 and 35. Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is except with him. This this is in chapter 10 rather, not in chapter 15. He had said this earlier when he was at the household of Cornish. In Acts 15, he references going to the house of Cornelius. And in, in, in that actual account there in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, He drew a conclusion. In other words, God had called him to the house of Cornelius. God had instructed him by a special miraculous sign to go to the house of Cornelius. That's what he's referring to here in the meeting in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And he he says a conclusion has to be reached from that. He said, I perceive. When he was at the house of Cornelius, he said, with all this that is happening, I perceive that God wants the gospel to go to the Gentiles. So what's he doing there? He's drawing a conclusion, a necessary inference, an inescapable conclusion, based upon the fact that God has called me to the house of this Gentile man. And that's that's the story he was telling here in Acts 15. He says, based upon the fact that God has specifically told me to come here, I draw the conclusion that God is no respecter of person and he wants the gospel to go to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Paul drew a conclusion. He made an inference based upon the situation and the information that was supplied to him, he drew a necessary conclusion. So, at the meeting in Acts chapter 15, 
Peter used necessary inference to come to the conclusion about how should these Gentiles be treated? Are they fit subjects for the kingdom? Should they should the gospel be preached to them? Should they be welcomed in? He drew a necessary conclusion, a necessary inference. Then, in that meeting, at verse 12, it says, All the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So Peter has said, I remember God sent me to Cornelius' house. He must want the Gentiles brought in. Then Paul and Barnabas talk about the fact they'd been preaching among the Gentiles, and God had been doing many miracles by their hand in the presence of these Gentiles as they went about preaching the gospel. From that, I think Paul and Barnabas conclude, since God is allowing us to do these signs and miracles among the Gentiles, he must approve what we do. Our example indicates God's approval that this is the way the gospel should be spread worldwide among the Gentiles. He talked about approved example. And then... James stands up and speaks. After they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken to me. Simon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Here, James quotes the prophet Amos in the Old Testament from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Amos had said that the Gentiles would be brought in. James says, this is, we actually have a direct command about this. There's a very clear statement in the Old Testament that says the Lord would bring the Gentiles in. Therefore, that's got to be right that we preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So notice, Peter, I think, used necessary inference. Paul and Barnabas used an approved example. James talked about what is plainly, directly stated in the Scripture. What did they do? They used all three methods to come to a conclusion about the Gentile converts to Christ and how they should be treated. They used, these were inspired men, they used these methods of reasoning to conclude what God wanted them to do. Direct command, approved example, necessary inference. And so, we believe that that is clearly how we ought to understand what God wants us to do. God authorizes us today to act in those same ways. Do you see it? Uh, This is important. Uh, I think very few people in the religious world in general understand these principles. And even some of our own brethren are beginning to deny or attack these concepts of biblical interpretation. But I think we can show from the Scripture, this is how God speaks to us. This is what He wants us to do. He expects us to use our logic and reasoning abilities to come to necessary conclusions about how we should serve Him. We'll continue our study next time. But again, I hope you agree that this is important for us to know. How do we establish Bible authority? Thanks for listening. We're going to sing a song of invitation. As we bring the lesson to a close, we always take a minute to ask everyone to consider your situation, your life, your relationship with God. Are you in a relationship with God? Are you a Christian? If not, then you need to make a decision to obey the gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. If you're a Christian already but not faithful, you need to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. And we'll use this song as an opportunity for you 
to let us know what your needs are so we can assist while we stand and sing.